This is a Bergen Film Club podcast. Like an old movie, removed from the frame, I am floating and looking for someone to blame. Won't you project me on the walls of your heart? I'm waiting for the real thing to start. Hello and welcome to The Real Thing. I'm your host, Joe Lawrence. This podcast is an extension of Bergen Film Club. Uh, and in this podcast, we talk about the films included in the film club's exciting program, why they're cool, why we chose them, why you should go see them, and why they're of any note at all. Today, again, hello, good morning. <laughs> Carolina <laughs> Tromvik is back. I'm back. Another one. Another one. Another Literally. one. DJ <laughs> College, Tromberg over here. Yeah, that's yeah. me. Mm-hmm. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> this is going to be the EPiest yeah. episode. If, uh, yeah, we had some uh, technical difficulties, so we're actually recording on the day of <laughs> the episode release, which I'm not enjoying. I'm not going to lie. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. I was stress- stressed out about it. Yeah, I get yeah. that. But it's fine. We're here. We are here. I already told you that I had such an interesting morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, Google Maps took me on a side quest. <laughs> I ended up in a graveyard. Yeah. No, that and here I am. Here you are. Here I am. Yeah. I interesting. Hope you're okay. I am. Yeah. I am. Mm-hmm. I'm a bit sleepy, but it's fine. Yeah. Let's let's go. Let's go. You're already on your bed. You could just go to sleep. Yeah, no, time. that's that's my plan. Yeah. Just take a little Just nap goes off. yeah yeah i've actually been hearing some people have been listening to this podcast to fall asleep to you know what i think that's the biggest compliment because yeah. i love listening to podcasts while falling asleep so mm. yeah multiple people have told me that i have a great voice you do to fall asleep to you do hmm Maybe my content just isn't interesting enough no your content is very interesting but you have a very soothing voice <laughs> Well, I was uh, going to say something about my plan to take over the world. Oh. By but t- putting everyone to sleep first. <laughs> and then walking into the White House. Yes. And saying, I'm the president now. Oh, I 100% am down. My first uh, act. Mm-hmm. No more podcasts. <laughs> except mine. <laughs> just <laughs> the Joe Lawrence experience. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. No. And yeah. the real thing. And the real yes, yeah. yes, the real yes. thing, and then a podcast where I just talk for four hours, <laughs> <laughs> and everyone has to listen through it. Yeah, obviously. And there will be a quiz at the end, and if you fail, you're done. Yeah, court mandated podcast listening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's the new punishment. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so today we're here to talk about a film that we showed just yesterday yes. at the film club, Millennium Mambo mm-hmm. from two thousand one. Mm. 
mm-hmm. a Taiwanese romantic drama film directed by Hu Xiaoxian. Yes. Yes. So, briefly, the plot. We follow the main character, Vicky, mm-hmm. who's played by Xu Qi, who serves as the principal narrator of the film, revealing to the audience in 2011 details of her life from the decade earlier. She describes her youth and the changes her life undergoes at the beginning of the new millennium. She works as a hotel. She works as a hotel. She <laughs> works as a hostess in a trendy bar. Vicky is torn between two men, Hao Hao and Jack, and her parallel love affairs showcase her inner life and her attitude towards her fleeting youth. Mm-hmm. You done chose this film for the program. Yes. Um, why did you choose it? Uh, so. When did you first watch it? I first watched it uh, just a couple of weeks before our programming meeting. Mm. I've, it's been on my watch list for years, and I really wanted to see it, mainly because I found uh, gifts on Tumblr. Not again. <laughs> and, Isn't uh, that how you chose a previous film? Uh, I found different from the others from that. Tumblr, but yeah, you did. You know what? I, if Tumblr gives me <laughs> great film suggestions, I will forever love Tumblr. Mm-hmm. So I watched it and I first of all thought it was such a beautiful film. Mm. Uh, just the visuals, the first five minutes of the film alone sells the entire film. It's just gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And I found the story to be very interesting. Yeah. A little bit confusing. But when I like got like, oh, this is what's happening. I was so down to, yeah. to hear about it and just be a part of Vicky's life for a little bit and um, I also found out that um, there was gonna or was just recently released like a new 4k uh, restoration of it and I thought this is like the perfect opportunity to show it Mm. and uh, I think this film deserves to be seen on a big screen in a movie theater because it's just it's so beautiful and just to be able to immerse yourself a lot more on with like a big screen it was yeah i yeah. just really wanted that <laughs> mm. mm-hmm. and the film club is 4k ready so we showed it in 4k yeah yeah uh last 4k film we're gonna show for a while but we got there and yeah. i'm so happy we were able to yeah definitely it yeah looked so beautiful it's, yes uh, i'm not so familiar with the kind of new wave chinese and taiwanese films like mm-hmm. uh like one car why i have not seen a one car why movie <gasps> but the way that they like are using color and the cinematography mm-hmm. so like strongly through the storytelling yeah it was uh very cool yeah. like something i read a lot is contrasting like a blue background with like the burning of a cigarette mm-hmm. very very cool yeah no it's just it's not a lot that happens during mm. the two hours in the film. Yeah. But at the same time, it feels like everything is happening all the time. And you're just... It, it feels like a piece of art when you when you watch it in a way. And you just get so immersed. And every little scene, I want to screenshot everything and just put the whole film on my wall so I can be yeah. able to look mm. at it. Because, yeah, it's just so beautiful. Definitely. I think that's like these sort of like slice of life mm-hmm. films like no they don't have such a extravagant plot mm-hmm. or oh it's not like a big adventure kind of drama but like you can find a lot of adventure and drama in yeah. everyday life yeah. and that's what makes 
comes like this so good because it's so mm-hmm. like deeply relatable yeah and because i feel like you can say one of the things in this film is vicky kind of going back to a relationship that isn't that good for her yeah um and people can get like kind of annoyed by that like why do you keep coming back to a guy who like inspects your whole body after you come home mm-hmm. every night to see if you have hickeys or you smell of a man perfume yeah um but it feels very still very relatable especially for the character vicky because mm. she seems to be very afraid and confused and lonely so she keeps going back she knows it's not a good thing for her but she's so lonely she doesn't know where to go yeah it's like a comfort yeah Hmm. it's almost that she found comforts in things that aren't good for her exactly because that's the life she knows in a way like uh smoking meth yeah with yakult yeah yeah lovely (laughs) that was crazy (laughs) (laughs) yes I was like wondering how the yakult was tying into the, the um, the crack smoking, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, yeah, it was in there. It was. Yeah, but that's like I guess that's the thing with the, these films is that you get so frustrated mm-hmm. with it because, it is frustrating. But I think that you just see so much of, you can't help but see yourself, in yeah, characters like that. Like, like we showed girlfriends last semester, mm-hmm. and I think. That's uh, such a deeply understandable and relatable character and similarly, like, worst person in the world, Mm -hmm. which, like, absolutely ruined my life. Great film. Oh, yeah, it's a great film, but yeah, yeah, I get that. Um, Just these people making kind of, like, morally questionable Mm -hmm. decisions, but you're like, that's so frustrating because you know exactly yeah i think the frustrating part is or the reason people find them frustrating is because they can relate and they don't want to relate because then they're faced yeah. with like maybe the bad or the um, the habits they have that they may want to get rid of mm. but now it's like in your face and you kind of see it for for what it is yeah which is uh can be upsetting but also kind of nice <laughs> in a way yeah, i guess yeah. it's like a way to kind of feel seen and usually in these films you kind of see a character work through it mm-hmm. so there's there's hope for everyone yet yes yeah. there is maybe maybe hopefully so as uh kind of as always i got a lot of my information from wikipedia <laughs> and if you <laughs> look I'm not one to disparage Wikipedia. It is a wealth of information. Yes. And it's free. Yes. Free.com. Free.com.no.org.uk. Yes. So, you know, I've I've put money towards Wikipedia. Slay. And you can too. You can <laughs> put as little or as much as you want to keep information free. <laughs> I love how when I went to high school, our teachers were like, do not use Wikipedia, it sucks. And then I got to the university and the professor were like, Wikipedia can be a great source of information. It can be a great source of information. <laughs> it's because I don't believe that anyone would lie to me. The... Have you talked to your therapist about that? No. <laughs> okay. Uh, and the second kind of reference that I'm using is a New York Times article 
mm-hmm. written by Jay Hoberman. It's like this short article kind of discussing what we're about to discuss in this uh, in this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so he describes her as a sordid yet transcendent bathed in neon haze set to a relentless techno beat. That Millennium Mambo is the story of a teenage girl from Taim- Taipei. And it's not only the most pop movie the great Taiwanese filmmaker has ever made, but intermittently among the most astonishingly beautiful. He describes the movie having a capital L look, and the 4K restoration does it absolute justice. Mm-hmm. So this film originally premiered at the 2001 Cannes Film Festival, where it was actually given like a mixed reception and an award for the sound design. Ho's first feature film since his exquisite period piece, Flowers of Shanghai, the movie marked his entry into contemporary territory, occupied by his two younger admirers, the filmmakers Oliver Assayas and Wong Kar Wai. Ho's frequent cinematographer, Mark Lee Pingbin, had just shot Wong's In the Mood for Love, and he reprised his voluptuous imagery, cigarettes as orange points of light in the blue and blue disco where Vicky spends her nights, the cramped cruddy apartment she shares with her emotionally abusive boyfriend and DJ wannabe, uh, how how, um, is a perfumed miasma. The pa- the pad's lush mise-en-scene sets up a shock cut to the gyrating butt in the hostess bar where Vicky has taken a job, where she meets her someone, sometime protector, a benign gangster with a Buddhist streak, Jack. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So some took uh, Millennium Mambo as his misguided attempt to connect with a younger generation, perhaps forgetting that he had begun his career as a commercial film director and made more than a few youth films, notably the dissimilar initially underappreciated Daughter of the Nile. So according to Maggie Chung, who's the star of In the Move for Love, mm-hmm. uh, who had originally wanted her to play Vicky, opposite Tony Lung, her co-star for In the Moon of Love. Um, yeah, okay, then the the author of this kind of like reads Shuchi, who mm-hmm. plays Vicky in the movie, but he says that she's like a less subtle actor than Chung, but the movie is actually stronger for it. Mm-hmm. Stunningly photogenic, remote and self-destructive, alternately passive and hysterical, Shuchi's character lives in the trance, reminiscent of the Warhol's superstar, Edie Sedgwick. As the New York Times critic Elvis Mitchell wrote in his mildly favorable review, the insistence of high throb electronica calls out to Vicky so that she pounds the thoughts out of her head. Vicky's neurotic behavior makes Millennium Mambo almost a case history, or given her repetitive voiceover narration, a kind of ballad. At the same time, like other Who films, it is temporal pretzel. Vicky narrates her story, apparently set in the year 2000, from the point 10 years in the future. Not infrequently, we hear about events before we see them. Mm-hmm. Most mysterious are the brief sequences set in the sleepy, snowy Japanese island of Hokkaido, an alpine environment far different from the steamy Taipei. All these motivated scenes a flash forward to Vicky's untroubled future, a deliberately unconvincing happy ending a la Douglas Sirk, a fantasy triggered by her chance encounter while clubbing with her two Japanese brothers. The, dir- the director is something of a Japanophile, and that in a spasm of narrative ambiguity, Vicky finds herself in the snowbound town that hosts the Ubari International Fantastic Film Festival. Could support any of these th- theories. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was quite like a nice article. It's kind of recontextualizing the film after it got mm-hmm. the, its 4k mm-hmm. restoration yeah but i i very much enjoyed what i saw of it and i thought <laughs> she did give a really good performance i think she's great yeah, yeah. absolutely and like i 
wouldn't imagine that character being anything but hysterical mm-hmm. in a way. Mm-hmm. Like she has a sucky life. Yeah, I would be hysterical. Yeah, same. Hysterical. You are, <laughs> but like she has a DJ boyfriend, which is already red flag. Red flag number one. Yes. Yeah. Who keeps playing loud music when she tries to sleep yeah. and just doesn't really take her wants or needs into consideration at all yeah it's like him and he's he's on top absolutely and he's like an insanely jealous and controlling yeah character like learning that he uh purposefully made her fail out of her high school mm-hmm. so she couldn't graduate so she couldn't leave him yeah was i was like i hate that yeah no <laughs> he's really upsetting. he's awful yeah and just like the fact that he forces himself onto her every time she gets home to just look over her and see like, oh, did you cheat on me now? Yeah. Did you do that? And checks her purse and everything. It's yeah. just very upsetting. Of course she is angry and hysterical. Anyone would be. <laughs> yeah. But I guess also like the frustration that she knows that she needs to leave. Yeah. And she shouldn't be with him, but it's like the alternative is being completely alone. Mm-hmm. She doesn't really have anyone else no. to go to. Yeah. She talks a bit about going home, but we never really see her go home. No. So we don't know if she's actually going home or she's just wandering the streets when she says so. It's, yeah. Yeah. No, it's, um, I just feel very sorry for her. Yeah, it's like. She's a very, very tragic mm-hmm. character. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, I didn't get to see the resolution. But, no. but it, she kind of gets a little bit fucked over by Jack as well. Okay. Where he kind of just disappears. Oh. Um, and, but she's still like, it seems like she gets her happy an- ending in Japan in oh. a way. And she... She meets some new people and hopefully things will get better for her. Yeah. And uh, she never looks at Hao Hao ever again. That's good. He sucks. He does. That actor, um, I have to say, he played that character very well. Yes. He made him so, like, hateable. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. That's Tuan Chun Hao. Yeah. Yeah. I saw... uh, letterbox review which i found relatable where mm. it's like the only time in this film i didn't hold my breath was when she, vicky was lying in jack jack's arm in the car mm. it's like yeah no that is yeah yeah those scenes are so tense and uncomfortable and you feel that so extremely in their apartment because mm-hmm. it's so they're so on top of each other and yeah there's no space there's like not really any even though they are in different rooms they are so close to each yeah. other all the time mm-hmm. it's a bit claustrophobic Absolutely, I love the apartment though such a pretty apartment <laughs> yeah it would be a perfect place to live alone yes yeah. but not two people no. where one it's is a horrible a abusive DJ DJ yeah. yeah DJs had like a hot moment I feel last year 2023 did they? I just I feel, I feel like everyone I knew was taking some sort of DJ class. Uh, maybe. Red flag. Red flag. And now I don't talk to any of them anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. 
no, DJs can be okay. Just don't be an asshole. Yeah. Yeah. You're not special. And don't just make music where you have a little like meow, meow, once in a while and meow. say that's meow, 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 meow. Meow, 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 meow. like that. Yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah, I thought we could just briefly talk about the the director of this film because mm-hmm. I didn't know so much about him and he's kind of a interesting guy. Yeah, I would say. So Hu Xiao Shen mm-hmm. uh, is a now retired mainland Chinese-born Taiwanese film director, screenwriter, producer, and actor. He is a leading figure in the world cinema and Taiwan's new wave cinema movement. He won the Golden Lion at the Venice Film Festival in 1989 for his film A City of Sadness and Best Director Award at Cannes Film Festival in 2015 for The Assassin. Other highly regarded works of his include The Puppet Master, Flowers of Shanghai and Millennium Mambo. Who was voted director of the decade in the 90s in a poll of American and international critics by The Voice Village and The Film Comment. In 1998, New York Film Festival Worldwide Critics Poll, who was named one of the three directors most crucial to the future of cinema. A City of Sadness ranked 117th in the BFI's 2012 Sight and Sound Critics Poll of the greatest films ever made. In 2017, Metacritic ranked uh, Xiao Jin, 16th on the list of 25 best film directors of the 21st century. So he's oh. held in like huge esteem amongst yeah. kind of critics. It's very impressive. Yeah. yeah. Every, everybody be loving him. I, I guess. Yeah. I unfortunately didn't, I was wondering if uh, Roger Ebert had any opinion on uh, <laughs> on uh, Hu Xiao Xin, but mm-hmm. I uh, didn't find anything, unfortunately. Oh. But I can only imagine that he liked him. I would think so. I hope so. Hopefully. Yeah. There's this interest, like, I won't go into it too much because I feel like I'm kind of defaming him <laughs> in a way. But since uh, uh, Xiao Shen was born in mainland China, mm-hmm. and you were saying that in this film it's kind of critiquing China in a way... Yeah, it's not like in-your-face like, critiquing, yeah, like but it's joking. like a little like, huh, makes sense. Yeah. It's from China, yeah. Um, and as we know, China and uh, Taiwan and the city Taipei have a very uh, convoluted relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and despite this, like, being recognized as, like, a specifically Taiwan director mm-hmm. and kind of, like, leading that cinema movement, he still considers considers himself a Chinese director yeah and representing chinese film and was also like a big supporter of like the chinese unification of taiwan and other states that china Mm -hmm. has control over and maybe shouldn't yeah that's very interesting yeah i I was surprised when you told me this Mm. first because yeah with it's not like a very like political in people's faces like um taiwan and or Taiwanese people like mm. criti- critiquing China yeah. in this film, but it's like a, a more like a jokey kind of eye roll yeah. comment. So it's interesting that he is so pro unifying them. Yeah, definitely. And uh, like even even in the like the very beginning of the film, they're kind of like joking about the Chinese characters and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, can you read that? Yeah. 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 Um. Yeah, I thought this was kind of interesting. Like he said, 
like quote i was born in mainland china so to me i will always be chinese no matter where i am end quote um but a taiwanese political magazine new bloom describes that although who has often been regarded as the quote quintessentially taiwanese filmmaker end quote in the west his personal politics oppose how his films are interpreted by anglophone mm -hmm. critics mm -hmm. so that's kind of like our perception of it yeah but perhaps to the people living there it's maybe a bit more obvious to his probably yeah yeah i don't know enough mm. to pick up on that yeah yeah but yeah my favorite um tennis player oh is from taiwan well yeah do you have a favorite tennis player i do shay suwei she just won twice at the australian open whoa yeah that's pretty good in mixed doubles and doubles that's cool she is a queen play yeah yeah i used to play tennis really yeah mm. i've never played it but i enjoy it very much it's very fun i love to see women succeeding <laughs> same and i love looking at hot men i mean yeah <laughs> just like the last episode on my instagram yeah hot men women succeeding Mm-hmm. that's all you need believe women's stories that's why i have you on this podcast so much <laughs> <laughs> okay so something you wanted to talk about and maybe a reason why i chose this film mm -hmm. is that it has a gorgeous 4k restoration yes and this is something or restorations in general is kind of something that's been happening for some time mm -hmm. now but it kind of spans very far back so i guess my first kind of exposure was not understanding what blu-ray was when mm -hmm. i was a kid um i just always knew that it was like some sort of like enhanced version of a film mm -hmm. but that we didn't have like a blu-ray compatible dvd oh, player so it yeah. was like i i can never watch these mm -hmm. and you'd get like standard standard definition dvds advertising blu-ray and i'd be sitting there like hmm. <laughs> um but yeah uh how how did you kind of become aware because I, I guess both of us know a lot about film yeah i think well um but how i'd like to think so <laughs> <laughs> uh how did you kind of get into get into film restoration or the concept of it uh that's a good question i like knew about film restoration and the fact that the uh, dvds had a worse quality than blu-rays yeah uh, and i always thought it was weird when new films only got dvd releases and not blu-ray releases i guess it's a cost thing but like why wouldn't you get the best version of yeah. the film a new film um and i think one thing that really kind of sparked my interest it's not that long ago it's just like six months months ago or something mm -hmm. uh, we were showing Ungflucht yes. or the wayward girl which is um like a huge norwegian film in the way that it's like the first film where what's the actress name again i should have prepared this better um i remember always feeling quite like um defined and protective over standard definition dvd mm -hmm. when i was a kid because i couldn't use blu-ray <laughs> and i was like who needs blu-ray who does the boxes are smaller yeah yeah no it was uh one of the first film that Liv ullman played in mm. uh the wayward girl yeah, yeah. and it's like uh it's directed by edit karmar which is a huge norwegian director um 
And it was just, yeah, we were showing it in the film club, this film. And uh, the best quality of the film we could find was kind of a meh DVD. Mm. Which was kind of frustrating, because, like, why aren't we taking care of these great Norwegian films? Uh, they are part of the uh, film history. Mm. And it's important to take care of, uh, care of it. And then... I think just a couple of days later, I watched a Norwegian film called um, Vilmark, which is also a really good like Norwegian horror film. Mm. And um, we watched it from like uh, TV2, which is one of the channels. They have like a streaming platform. And the quality was so bad. Like oh, okay. we can barely see what is happening here. And this is like the real this is the best you can get mm -hmm. uh, and i found that very frustrating that we don't take better care of the films we have yeah this uh, fritvilt is like a film from 2006 the quality shouldn't be this this poor mm -hmm. uh, in my opinion uh and then all of a sudden uh, i heard about this new project uh called norske film klassikere which is uh kind of made by this guy called christopher falk who I honestly was terrified of as a kid. Why? <laughs> I just thought he was very scary. He used to be like, um, um, it. I think it's the Norwegian equivalent of Survivor. Okay. He was like the what's it called? The host. host yeah. yeah. And I just thought he was scary. Okay. <laughs> and. Uh, Every time I've seen in in a TV show, he he's kind of scary, but okay. he seems to be very nice and care a lot about both films and CDs. He mm. also is a part of a project that uh, restores CDs to make the sound quality better. Cool. And he started this project called Norske Film Klassiker, uh, where they um, have Norwegian films that uh, they want to restore to Blu-ray mm -hmm. and a good Blu-ray a good like restorations uh and it's all based on crowdfunding mm. so if uh it gets like sixteen thousand crowns i think they will print it up send it to people who were a part of the crowd crowdfunding yeah and also start printing up to sell at plat compania which is like the main blu-ray dvd game store we have here in norway they yeah. only have one physical store left which is sad oh no they used to have a big one here in Bergen, but they yeah. uh, replaced it with another shoe store. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very sad. Mm. But so this whole project, I noticed, sparked a lot of interest. And I was also very happy because mm -hmm. there is so many great Norwegian films out there that is yeah. so poor quality that no one really cares about them because you can barely see what is happening on the screen. Yeah. Uh, so I think uh, there's now... 14 or 15 films that has been like kind of released and okay. all of them have been covered and crowdfunded and they are working on mm. pressing them all right now so there is a huge interest to get better quality films uh, and i'm so happy that this is happening and yeah. that we get to enjoy these great films uh in a quality they deserve yeah so absolutely. yeah that's mm -hmm. such a cool project yeah i agree yeah it's amazing i'll make sure to like link to please do this there is the a notes. facebook group yeah um where these get posted it's like batches so there's mm. batch one 
was it was covered pretty quickly they released like a film a day wow okay uh and it's like 30 to 40 days to fund them Mm. and all of them have been funded like people are super passionate about this uh batch two was just been finished founding like Mm. a couple of weeks ago so they are being worked on and printed out relatively new yeah yeah okay Mm -hmm. wow very cool super cool and they're also doing books they are going a bit slower (laughs) where they write about some of the films and hopefully some of these films will also be released in a better version because one Mm. of them is a book about Vilmark and I'm like hoping they're gonna make a a blu-ray version Mm. of Vilmark because it's a very fun and scary film but the quality is shitty okay yeah cool Mm mm-hmm um yeah so i thought maybe just to kind of close it up i would talk a bit about like the concept of film preservation or restoration and then kind of like what uh kind of like larger scale efforts are being made kind of Mm -hmm. like within the industry itself yeah yeah because obviously there is probably lots of small projects oh definitely um people who are just very passionate about this but you can't only do so much by just being passionate yeah Yeah. so uh, film preservation or restoration describes a series of ongoing efforts among film historians archivists museums cinematechs and non-profit organizations to rescue decaying film stock and preserve the images that they contain in the widest sense preservation assures that a movie will continue to exist in as close to its original form as possible For many years, the term preservation was synonymous with duplication. The goal of preservationist is to create a durable copy without any significant loss of quality. In more modern times, full preservation includes the concepts of handling, duplication, storage, and access. The archivist seeks to protect the film and share its contents with the public. Film preservation is not to be confused with film revisionism, in which long completed films are modified with the insertion of outtakes on new musical scores, the addition of sound effects, black and white film being colorized, all the soundtracks converted to Dolby stereo, or minor edits and cosmetic changes being made, which I guess is a nice distinction. Mm-hmm. By the 1980s, it was becoming apparent that the collection of motion pictures heritage were at risk of becoming completely lost. Not only was the preservation of nitrate film an ongoing problem, but it was then discovered that safety film, used as a replacement for the more volatile nitrate stock, was beginning to be affected by a unique form of decay known as vinegar syndrome, Mm -hmm. which I will talk about, and color film manufactured, in particular Eastman Kodak, was found to be at risk of fading. At that time, the best known solution was to duplicate the original film onto a more secure medium. A common estimate is that 90% of all American silent films between 1920 and 50, uh, before, uh, sorry, that all silent films made before 1920 and 50% of American sound films before 1950 are lost completely. Although institutional practices of film preservation date back to the 1930s, the film, uh, the field received an official status only in the 1980 when UNESCO recognized moving images as an integral part of world's cultural history. So vinegar syndrome um, is basically this thing that happens to acetate film. Mm-hmm. Um, in the beginning of the 80s, there was a great deal of focus upon the film stability following frequent reports of cellulose triacetate degradation. Cellulose acetate 
releases acetic acid, the key ingredient in vinegar, which is responsible for its acidic smell. Mm -hmm. The problem known as vinegar syndrome, this accelerates degradation within the film and can also contribute to the damage surrounding the film and metal and machinery. Yeah, so kind of, uh, if I remember correctly, um, if you watch like a, a film on a film roll, mm. Uh, if it looks a bit pink, the picture, yeah. that's usually a huge sign of vinegar syndrome. Yeah. So it kind of just decays almost. Mm. Yeah. And if you would like to know specifically more about the handling of mm -hmm. film mm -hmm. and also more about this, uh, we do have a episode, a special episode <clears throat> where we spoke with someone, an ex-projectionist from BFI. Lexi, right? Lexi, yeah. indeed. Um, from our two specials that we did, Function mm -hmm. of Film. So if you want to learn more about that, she gave a very, very in-detail de in history of everything about film. Yeah, no, Lexi is super yeah. smart with this. I got my uh, 35mm certification Great. from her. Yeah. So I learned a bit about both vinegar syndrome and mm. uh, just film on film. Yeah. <laughs> but if you want to listen to someone expertly talking mm -hmm. about it then please go listen to that episode oh yeah definitely so in terms of the kind of like larger scale efforts um this goes all the way back to the beginning of the 20th century mm -hmm. in 1926 will hayes a director asked for film studios to preserve their films by storing them at 40 degrees at low humidity in an east kodak process so that schoolboys in the year 3000 and 4000 ad may learn about us mm. In the beginning of the 70s, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, aware the original negatives of many of the Golden Age films had been destroyed in a fire, began a preservation program to restore and preserve all of its films by using whatever negatives survived, or in many cases, the next best available element, whether it be fine-grained master positive or mint archival print. From the onset, it was determined that if some films had to be preserved, then it would have to be all of them. In 1986, when Ted Turner acquired MGM's library, where, uh, which by then had been included in Warner Bros.'s pre-950, MGM's pre-May 1986 and a majority of the RKO Radio Pictures catalogues, he vowed to continue the preservation work MGM had started. Warner Bros. Discovery, the current owner of Turner Entertainment, continues the work today. The course for film preservation came to the forefront in the 80s and the early 90s, when such famous and influential film directors as Steven Spielberg and Martin Scorsese contributed to the cause. Spielberg became interested in film preservation when he went to view a master of his film Jaws, only to find it had been badly decomposed and deteriorated a mere 15 years after the film had been filmed on film. Mm -hmm. Scorsese drew attention to the film's industry use of colour fading film stock through the use of his black and white film stock in the 1980 Raging Bull. His film Hugo included a key scene in which many of film pioneer George Melier, silent films are melted down and the raw materials recycled as shoes. This was seen by many movie critics as a passionate brief for film preservation wrapped in a fanciful tale of childhood intrigue and adventure. Scorsese's concern about the need to save motion pictures of the past led him to create the Film Foundation, a non-profit organization dedicated to film preservation in 1990. He was joined in this effort by fellow filmmakers who served on the Foundation's Board of Directors. Woody Allen, Robert <laughs> Altman, 
Francis Cord Coppola, Clint Eastwood, Stanley Kubrick, George Lucas, Sidney Pollock, Robert Redford, and Steven Spielberg. In 2006, Paul Thomas Anderson, Wes Anderson, Curtis Hansen, Peter Jackson, Ang Lee, and Alexander Payne were added to the board of directors of the Film Foundation, which is aligned with the Directors Guild of America. By working in partnership with the leading film archives and studios, the Film Foundation has saved nearly 600 films, often restoring them to pristine condition. In many cases, original footage has been excised or censored by a production code in the US from the negative original has been reinstated also. In addition to the preservation, restoration and presentation of classic cinema, the Foundation teaches young people about film language and history through the story of movies, an educational program claimed to be used by over 100,000 educators nationwide. In the age of digital television, high-definition television and DVD, film preservation and restoration has taken on a commercial as well as historical importance since audiences demand the highest possible picture quality from digital formats. Meanwhile, the dominance of home video and ever-present needs for television broadcasting content, especially on speciality channels, has meant that films have a proven source of long-term revenue to a degree that the original artists and studio management before the rise of media never imagined. Thus, media companies have a strong financial incentive to carefully archive and preserve their complete library of films. So it's nice that uh, those institutions Mm -hmm. exist to kind of ensure that films are going to be around and films of the past will hopefully all be reinstated and be be able to be watched. Yeah, no, it's um, it's very important to... Because film is a part of history, no, no matter what you say it's entertainment yes but it's also a huge part of history absolutely and having a lot of the films just be on like film film mm. uh it's it's very easy to lose or to ruin and then suddenly we have that's how we get lost films because yeah. uh they were either just printed on like you mentioned a nitrate uh film mm. which is very flammable Yes. Like it will catch fire so easily. Yeah. <laughs> and that's how you lose a lot of film. Mm. It's like it's gone, it's burned up and that that was it. Yeah. It sucks. And uh yeah, no, so it's just very important to take care of these and restore them and mm. handle them with care. Yeah. Cuz losing them would be tragic. It's like we talked about different from the others in a different podcast episode I was on where a lot of the film is just burnt up and gone Mm. and we have lost like such a huge part of what i find to be very important history Mm. from 1919 where they talk about queer people and Mm -hmm. they talk about trans people yeah and no one really knows about it because it's so the film is broken and and most of it is just gone so you know i appreciate that people are focusing on this and Mm -hmm and want to restore these films because it's important that we can still watch these old films in a hundred years if the yeah. earth still remains in a hundred yeah. years <laughs> yeah mm. yeah but i was just saying like i knew of this project from when i was quite young mm-hmm. um through watching dvds actually because there would be a, a commercial that martin scorsese was in and mm-hmm. i was like who is this tiny little Whoa. man who is it? Um, and he was talking about um, a recent restoration that he had been a part of or done mm-hmm. of the movie The Red Shoes, which mm-hmm. I think is one of his favorite films. Yeah. Um, and that's how I came to kind of understand the process of restoring film because I even then was like seeing what the original looked like to what the restored looked like, mm-hmm. especially in a film like that when the color is so important. Yeah. 
it was like super incredible mm-hmm. and it's very cool like he's a cool guy yeah yeah i'm not afraid to say it well, martin scorsese is a cool guy that's a hot take yeah but similarly with film restoration recently so jaws actually got a 4k restoration a few years ago because mm-hmm. i saw that in the cinema safe um was very cool a lot of my friends hadn't seen it i jaws. don't think i've seen the whole so of jaws i know anywho but th- i think these are just like often films that i have seen is because my mom would have showed them to me mm-hmm. or it's the kind of film that's on ev- almost every day on some <laughs> channel in the uk yeah yeah uh, fair enough but uh yeah uh, i love stanley kubrick films got a restoration mm-hmm. recently um in recent like maybe the past five years um kind of beginning with 2001 a space odyssey which i saw in the cinema and i remember it was um i was super uncomfortable mm-hmm. during the during the screening so i remember it very vividly because i was like this film is so long <laughs> um and kind of boring oh um but visually very impressive yeah but it wasn't very interesting mm-hmm. and then, then i felt like i was stupid because i didn't get it mm. and i am stupid but don't, um don't sell yourself short and eyes wide shut got a restoration recently as well mm-hmm. but if i can just throw stanley kubrick under the bus yes one time again I, I think i've talked about this before on the podcast um so stanley kubrick as we know famously was quite an intense yes um filmmaker yeah and i just want to make sure i get this guy's name right um you know we know that he was very uh intense nay abusive to uh Shelley Duvall yeah during the filming of this of The Shining which she has talked about a lot mm-hmm. but there was a man called Leon Vitali mm-hmm. who unfortunately passed away two years ago who was just like obsessed with Stanley Kubrick mm-hmm. he he plays in Barry Lyndon he was an actor originally and then he came to be in Barry Lyndon which I also think got a restoration recently oh and he just became Stanley Kubrick's kind of right-hand man mm-hmm. and basically became his, like, his personal assistant, yeah. his director assistant, his, like, director of photography assistant. He like was just, like... Right-hand man. Yeah, he was the everyman mm-hmm. on the set. And there's this incredible documentary, which I will recommend, called Film Worker, mm-hmm. which is about Leon. Mm-hmm and like there's all these stories that like stanley would be like super horrible or intense to someone and leon would kind of come in to kind of be like oh he doesn't mean it like just give give it everything you want and the actor who plays danny in the shining Mm -hmm. was just like he remembers spending so much time with leon but leon Mm -hmm. sacrificed so much of his own life whoa yeah like not spending christmases with his family because stanley was alone and would call and be like come over and then he would but the restorations of stanley's films Mm -hmm. were done single-handedly by leon whoa and it's just that it's incredible but in the documentary you see him just sitting in front of this console yeah running the film through and he's just sitting there just for hours and hours and hours and yeah. people are like his friends are just like saying we try to get him to sleep and he just doesn't because he's so Shit. dedicated to yeah. this man so yeah i just wanted to credit him for his restoration and his mm-hmm. work because yeah he was such a like passionate guy yeah and that's he wow really, and he like looked so much older than he mm-hmm. was because mm-hmm. he was just been worked to the absolute bone yeah 
his entire life by Stanley because he so took advantage of him. Oh, yes. But Leon just like wanted him to because he thought he was just like this most incredible guy. That's so sad I to know. know he like dedicated his life yeah. to Kubrick for like nothing, basically. Or not yeah. for nothing, but yeah. Yeah. And he uh, he helped finish Eyes Wide Shut mm. because famously Stanley Kubrick died before the end mm-hmm. of the production of that film. So And because Leon knew him so well, he was actually the one who sort of helped the film through the end of filming yeah. and in post-production as well. Wow. So you can That's credit a lot of wow. Stanley Kubrick's success to Leon Vitale. So mm-hmm. Just a quick restoration, Leon Vitale, Stanley Kubrick yeah. hitting side No, note. that's uh, great. Yeah, I just wanted to shout him out because I was I was so impressed by him. Yeah, no, and that is impressive. I, I I know that he died some years ago, but I only found out like recently. Mm-hmm. I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. No, that's very interesting. Yeah. Wow. Huh. Good podcast. Yeah. Yeah, I ate today. You did. And you ate today. Thank you. Yeah. We should record it like 10 a.m. every day. We should. Yeah. Like, wow, we have so much, so much interesting to say. To say. Yeah. Thanks for being on. Again, of course. Obviously. Um, love having you on. I so l- knowledgeable. I love being on. <laughs> <laughs> I feel so smart. <laughs> yeah. Um, fret not, because Caroline will be back uh, well, in two weeks. Yes. So. Got a break for a week. <laughs> you can collect yourself and be back to talk about. Uh, the incredible the incredibly true adventure of two girls in love exactly longest title we have yeah it was difficult writing the review for this one because mm. we have a word limit of oh yeah uh 75 words in Norwegian mm-hmm. and no 150 in, 100 in Norwegian 75 in something like that yeah and the title itself takes like half of the word count <laughs> <laughs> yeah but i'm very excited to talk about happy lesbians happy lesbians so fear not I will be back very soon and probably again and probably again yeah yes okay well thank you thank you for having me thanks for listening goodbye bye this has been a Bergen Film Club production our music is by Wise John check them out on Instagram at WISE John Official our logo is by Pia Sophia Brentesen. This episode was produced, mixed, and engineered by Joel Lawrence. Our researchers are Inke Schilfreiburn and Mamina Nasmajit. Want to talk to us about films? Then please send us an email at podcast at bergenfilmclub.com. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at TheRealThingPod. Check us out on Letterboxd at BFK the Real Thing. Thank you and goodbye. Listen, follow, leave us a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts.